Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Welcome back to the HBO official Band of Brothers podcast. This is Roger Bennett. I say flash, you say thunder. Episode one, Karahi. An episode that takes us back to Easy Company's inception, basic training at Camp Tacoa, Georgia, all the way to a pottery England and the precipice of the Allied invasion of Europe. What we see during that time is the men undertaking the gruelling, grinding transformation from individual raw recruits into a fearsome collective, a process that begins under the petty, sadistic eye of Captain Herbert Sobel, a stickler played by David Schwimmer, who delights in charging his underlings up and down Curahy, the mountain that looms over the edge of camp. While revoking weekend pass privileges due to any minor infractions. What is this? Anybody? Uh... It's a can of peaches, sir. Lieutenant Nixon thinks this is a can of peaches. That is incorrect, Lieutenant. Your weekend pass is cancelled. Those who endured Sobel's tyrannical reign at Camp Tekoa watched him unravel upon arrival in England, where the practical application of the skills learned stateside were severely tested. There should be no, there should be no fence here. Um, <clears throat> we, we could go over it, sir. Really? That's not the point. We're the goddamn... Goddamn hell Failure that allowed Lars to dust off his best Major Horton impression. What is the goddamn hold up, Mr. Sober? <laughs> Offense! Say, um. God. A barbed wire fence! Oh, that dog just ain't gonna hunt. Now, <laughs> you cut that fence and get this goddamn platoon on the move! Yes, sir! And it was that incompetence in the field that ultimately saw Sobel transferred and Easy Company fall into the hands of their true leader, Dick Winters, a man who oozes natural, calm, emotionally intelligent, follow-me leadership. Above all, this episode, co-written by Tom Hanks himself, along with supervising producer Eric Jenderson, directed by Phil Alden of Field of Dreams fame, illustrates that bond 
that Stephen Ambrose described so brilliantly in his book, Band of Brothers. They would literally insist on going hungry for one another, freezing for one another, dying for one another. My guest today is the man who played Captain Lewis Nixon III, the intelligence officer for the 2nd Battalion, 506 Parachute Infantry Regiment, 101st Airborne Division. A gent we first meet on the cusp of D-Day, walking around an English airbase, flask of scotch in hand, and he'd go on to become one of only a handful of men in a regiment to make three combat jumps, a truly complex gent, a sage, deeply human warrior who felt the savagery of war, and perhaps because of that, kept a permanent stash of VAT-69 stowed away in his footlocker. It's a joy to welcome the man who made Lewis Nixon return to life, Mr. Ron Livingston. Thank you, Raj. Appreciate it. Ron, it is a joy to be with you. I love your screen presence. I admire your approach to acting. You once said, Every six or seven years, you look in the mirror and you have a completely different product. You said, oh, I guess I'm in this business now. When you look back on your Band of Brothers experience, what business were you in when you assumed the persona of Lewis Nixon? Well, it's funny because going into that, I was very much considered a comedy guy. I was still trying to convince people to give me a shot on the drama side. I think in a way that ended up helping a lot of times, I feel like what I end up doing in movies, if I'm in a comedy, I end up playing it straight. And if I'm in a drama, I end up playing it funny. I feel like I've kind of made a career doing that. You're already well known, unlike many of the Band of Brothers actors. By the time the show was being cast, you'd been in Swingers. You'd just played Peter from Office Space, a cult classic slacker comedy on the surface. Quite a leap from Peter Gibbons to Lewis Nixon, from battling the office copy machine to the Allied invasion of Normandy. But if you dig a little bit deeper, there is a connection. There's a haunted damage to both characters. Do you feel that or did they seem equally disconnected in your mind? I came to them from such different places, mostly because one was fictional and one was historical. So with Peter Gibbons, I felt like I had the freedom to do whatever I wanted with it. I felt a lot more pressure sort of with Lewis Nixon. The scope of the thing alone, you know, the fact that it's, oh my God, it's HBO, it's a $130 million thing, it's Spielberg, it tanks, that gives its own actor pressure. But beyond that, it was like, just felt a responsibility that I was going to be portraying a real person who probably nobody had ever played before and who knows if anyone will ever play him again. So I wanted to get that right. Your casting story is, I mean, it's remarkable. You'd met Band of Brothers casting Supremo Meg Lieberman when you worked on an indie movie, The Rumor of Angels. That's right. An indie movie, whenever you talk about it, you always say, no one ever saw that. But that's how life works. (laughs) You'd met Meg. She asked you to come in for the Band of Brothers audition. Can you take us in to your first audition? Because I've heard you tell this story. And in stark contrast to every other bloody cast member we've interviewed, all of them threw themselves into the minutiae of research or brought army equipment into the audition room. You. Essentially, Peter Gibbons did. The first audition, I just kind of showed up and looked at the sides for two reasons. Number one, I was on a holding deal with Fox. I didn't think there was any way in the world they were going to let me out to do it anyway. 
And the other one was every war movie I've ever seen, the officers always look a certain way. You know, they have angular high cheekbones. <laughs> yeah, they're all blonde. And I just thought, no way I'm going to get this. So when I got the call back and they told me that I was going to now go read for Tom, all of a sudden, no, I felt like I, <laughs> I had to take it a little bit seriously. So I rushed out to the bookstore. I bought a copy of Band of Brothers. And then like any good actor, I turned to the index to look for the character's name so I could skip all that other stuff. And the first thing I opened it to, of course, was the picture in the middle of the book where he's lying in a bed, hungover, surrounded by all these bottles after V-Day. In that second, this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. This is perfect. Oh, I'm going to get this. First of all, yeah, there was a striking resemblance. Before, I just thought Meg was really stricken by my talents. But now I'm like, oh, well, I, look, I look like the guy. But I kind of had a feeling, and then I went and I read for Tom. You once said that Hanks was one of the actors whose personas you were, quote, trying to assume and make your own. You said in life you desired to be a young, cheap, ersatz Hanks. I had been ripping him off for a couple of years, just (laughs) (laughs) sort of early sitcom stuff, because I didn't really know how else to do it. I was a little cognizant that I thought he might recognize deliveries as his own. You said you never got over being nervous around Tom Hanks. So what was that like to walk into that interview with a bloke who is one of your acting heroes? I expect to be nervous when I walk into interviews. I'm always a little bit nervous. If anything, it's kind of a good thing. It gives you a little extra energy. Tom was so great at disarming people. He's just really, really charming. Where I got really nervous with Tom was when it was actually time to shoot the thing because it put up or shut up Tom. How are you playing it though? Because the Ambrose book describes Nixon as a complex gentleman, flamboyant, hard man to get out of the sack in the morning, a great quote. His father, fabulously wealthy, the product of Yale, a big drinker. How did you analyze that and then process it into your portrayal? He was an extraordinary guy and the rules didn't quite apply to him. The rules that applied to everyone else just didn't apply to him. He had extraordinary privilege just from who he was and what his background was and what his gifts were, and he carried that. That was the key with him, having that entitlement. He felt comfortable telling people what to do. I mean, we're the only unit in the group that's got the Germans on the German side of the Rhine. If we'd have taken Antwerp, and I'm not saying that that would have been easy, we would be over the river, well supplied, have the Krauts on their heels. Now I can just get Ike on the phone. Are you listening to me? He had a beard. They called him Blackbeard. I'll tell you what, Babe Heffron and Wild Bill Garnier came to visit us on set. And I got to meet him. And it was when we were shooting Curry. So I had like a day or two of stubble. They said, oh, this is Ron. He's playing Nixon. And the first thing that Babe Heffron does, he looked and he goes, where's your beard? And I was like, what? I, I've got, I've got. He's like, no, 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 no. That guy had a beard. And I was like, well, this is this is sort of, you know, we're still sort of in boot camp. So I, I thought, you know, like, we're going to dial that. He's like, nah, that guy wouldn't shave for the Pope. So you go on through the Hanks audition, which you ace, into the big mix and match. That's the legendary audition with hundreds of aspiring actors. A lot of nerves there. Think of it as some kind of band of brothers, Lollapalooza. And so many actors have told us they were trying out for multiple parts. They had no idea what was going on. But you, you were locked in on Nixon. And while you were learning your lines, you accidentally came across the casting depth chart. Tell us what you saw, Rob. (laughs) Because I was only reading for one part, I had basically a lot of downtime. And Meg said, hey, Ron, we can put you in a room here by yourself. So they put me in a little, somebody's little office. And then they left, just kind of sitting around twiddling my thumbs. And I looked down on the desk (laughs) and I see this grid. 
And at the top of the grid are initials T-H-S-S-T-T. Tom Hanks, Steven Spielberg, Tony To, the other legendary producer. And then there's names of actors going down the side. And like little check marks and pluses. And my first thought was like, oh, I should probably not look at this. This is probably not good to look at. I couldn't, I just, I can't help myself. I, I, I got to look down. I go find my name. It had some checks. It had some pluses. I felt good about it. After seeing that, you've said you were just exhilarated and you threw yourself into the role in the mix and match in front of some audience, as you say, Tom Hanks. Meg, Tony Toe, and Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, who is videotaping your audition on the ground, working the angles. I need to know, does that make you nervous or did it just encourage you to turn up your performance to 11? It was entirely surreal. It didn't make me nervous, any more nervous than I probably already was. The thing that I noticed about that is I could see in that second why Steven is such a great filmmaker because he was on the ground, just the way that he was operating with this little video camera, just capturing the audition. He looked like a 17-year-old kid making his first movie with a Super 8 camera. He had that sort of joy. I was like, oh, this guy loves it. This guy, he lives for this. He was born to do this. I had one moment where it probably could have all gone wrong. The audition scene I did was the one on the train where winners asked, what am I going to do without booze? And at the end of the thing, the penny drops and the punchline is... And I have a case of a bad 69 hidden in your footlocker. So we're doing the scene. Tom Hanks is reading the other part. And we get to the end of the scene. And Tom's just looking at me. And I'm looking back at Tom. And Tom's looking at me and I'm looking at Tom. And I see Tom's eyes get big, like a little alarm start to creep in. And then I realize, oh, I haven't said the last line yet. I haven't paid off the joke. As if I'd been standing there like it was a mic drop and I'm just standing there holding the mic, not dropping it. I remember it was just kind of this moment of like, all right, well, I'll say it now, you know. And I got probably the biggest laugh out of Tom that I've gotten out of anybody because it kind of worked perfectly. It was about half again as long a pause as I would ever have the balls to take. But it was extraordinary. And I could see after that, I just knew, you know, you just see the signs because the room is laughing. Steven's smiling and nodding, you know, and it's like, okay, now I'm going to go do this. What do you think they saw in you? You, a comedian, you, a son of the great state of Iowa. I had graduated from Yale, which is where he went to school. I'm not from that world, but I had been around it. I knew of that world and I was invited into it and moved through it a little bit. So I had a decent idea. Before you left for the production shoot itself, how did you prepare? I saw that you spent time with field diaries, intelligence reports. One of the things that I did is made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to look at a lot of World War II history. I was going to look at Civil War history and World War One because those were going to be the stories that these guys grew up and when they thought of war, this is what they were going to think of. I tried to go into it allowing some of these things to surprise me. You know, Sherman tanks were surprising. That stuff was cutting edge military technology. Parachuting was something that hadn't been going on for very long. It was cutting edge technology. The thing that I did that was probably the most valuable is I got in touch with his wife, Grace Nixon, who happened to live in Sherman Oaks. So she was probably 20 minutes from where I lived. And she was a rare gem of a human being. She was his intellectual match. I don't think I ever took a backgammon game off of her. I met her for lunch. 
the first thing she did when the waiter comes, she said, I'll have water. He'll have a cocktail. And I think she wanted to see how I handled myself with a cocktail. I think I passed that test. And so she was like, yeah, okay, okay. Tareel Nixon had unfortunately passed away by the time production began. He died in 1995 and he was an elusive character. As I said, an Ivy League guy amongst hard scrabble characters, a guy of means amidst their unit who are largely kids of the Great Depression. Didn't even speak to Ambrose for the books. He didn't even have that to go on. What did Grace, what were the biggest lessons about the character that you learned from her? Not so much anything that she said. It's something when you're in somebody's space where their presence is, you get a sense of it. Like I'm in his library, so I see all the books on his show. He was really into cooking. He was a gourmet French cook, so there's like all these cookbooks on the wall. She showed me letters that he wrote her, so I could see his handwriting. They traveled all over the world. They didn't have kids together, but Grace, I think, had been to Antarctica twice. They'd gone everywhere. There's a line I love where you say, when you look at the pictures in Stephen Ambrose's book, you can see how these characters carry themselves. They carried themselves like goddamn men. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they did. They did. They really did. You then travel to England to prepare to shoot. Now... Band of Brothers, one of the most immersive shows that I have ever heard about. The length of the shoot, nearly a year. The pre-production, the boot camp, getting all the actors together for a 10-day crash course in military tactics and culture. The thing that really set apart Band of Brothers from any other acting experience I have, it was the only time I've ever had where it was kind of immersion. They brought this Hollywood legend, Dale Dye, military advisor, he had done Platoon. He had basically done every major war movie in the last 10 years. And he's an amazing character. He's a bit of a cross between the great Santini and Harold Hill. You know, he breathes fire, but I still to this day, I'm not sure which, if any, of his stories are actually true. He was just a master at spinning a yarn. And he really created this environment where they were putting us through it and we were doing it as the guys that we were playing. When I was a kid, imagining in my dreams what an actor was going to be, it looked like this. When you finally get there, you realize it's all smoke and mirrors. Band of Brothers was the opposite of that. The boot camp thing that we did, it was all reality. It was 24-7, immersive. I always thought military reenactor community. I was sort of like, what's that about? But I totally get it now because it's like, oh, you really do develop a feeling for these other people that lived in another time because you're putting yourself through some of the same things that they went through. This boot camp, every morning, a five-mile run at 6am, nights, guard duty, stripping rifles, night compass marches, sniper assault. How hard were those 10 days? Because everybody laughs about them now, but it's far more than you normally sign up for when you take a role. It is. Physically, I was ready for it. When I told my grandfather that I'd gotten the part, he just said, well, start running now. He said, everything else is a duck walk, but you better be able to run like hell. And I did. And so physically, it was fine. The whole point, I think of it, is to put us in a high-stress environment where we're forced to execute things together without panicking. And I think that's what boot camp is intended to do for the real-life military. So they just lifted that. Most of the difference was they weren't allowed to hit us. You began boot camp as privates, but they promoted the officers every couple of days. And with every promotion, privileges, ultimately, Ron, you got your own room. And as an officer, you had a slightly different experience of boot camp than the men 
a lot of actual responsibility. You had to oversee exercises, organize the men, march them. How long did it take to settle into that role, to embrace that pseudo position of authority? They didn't want you to have time to settle into it. It's really another brilliant part of why I think the show worked the way it did. Usually, you have assistant directors that come around and say, oh, hello, can I get you a coffee? We'd like to invite you to come stand on your mark if you're ready. And this didn't work like that. The guys that were playing the platoon leaders would be told what their platoon needed to execute and accomplish. He would tell the squad leaders, the squad leaders, they would do it. There was one night, I think the night that they moved the officers all into a room together. So it's like you had to pick up your mattress. You had to bring your mattress with you, all your stuff. They had given us a break. Everybody was kind of beat up. They had said, we know, you know, you're tired. A lot of people are nursing some injuries. And if we're going to give you tomorrow off, we want you to just get your gear all out, lay it out, get everything squared away and just take some time. So we go and start to do this. And 25 <laughs> minutes into it, they come in banging garbage cans saying, let's go, let's go out front. And we had like, three minutes to pull it all together, repack all the stuff that they had just told us to unpack and run out where they took us like on an all night march. And it was brilliant because it specifically sets you up for in a couple of the episodes, especially the Battle of the Bulge run. It's obviously not that experience. It's not, it's, we weren't in the Battle of the Bulge, but it's analogous. You know what I mean? It's analogous enough to be able to go, okay, Right. I remember what that felt like when we had to do that. Now I have an idea of how to play how he would. It was an incredible conceit by the producers. This boot camp led to a bunch of actors genuinely feeling the bond of men who are about to go to war together. There's a beautiful story. Private Tipper, he had to field strip an M1 and it took him an age. So one of your trainers ordered you, as his squad leader, on to get into the push-up position, hands in a diamond, and stay there until Tipper finished. You tell us what happened. As his squad leader, I was responsible for making sure that he got it, which he had. He did it beautifully. He was no problem until the chips are down, and then he started fumbling with it. And I'm in the push-up position, and Frank John Hughes, he gets down in it, like the slow clap, you know, <laughs> and then all the guys are down and Tipper eventually gets it. How did that feel? It felt really good. It felt like we were doing something because the truth is we didn't really have to know what we're doing, which I'm sure we didn't. We just had to believe that we did. And at that point, we were believing it. We'd all drunk the Kool-Aid. There was another moment we we're looking for the abandoned railway and we'd have no idea what an abandoned railway looked. So we found it, didn't realize we were there ranged another six or seven miles looking for what we thought an abandoned railway would look like and found something but now we're miles away from the camp and we're late and we've got like 20 minutes to get back right and everybody's exhausted and it was a moment where i just realized it's going to be really embarrassing if nixon the s2 if his squad got lost out in the woods and is late for chow. And so I just started screaming at guys and like going, let's go. We're double timing it. And Frank John Hughes, who I think had a four inch blister on his heel already, just looked at me and said, yeah. And he like started getting the other guys to do it. And Frank John is there for you. 
Frank, man. I love you, Frank. Nixon, different from the men. And you were different to the other actors from the beginning in that before boot camp began, the producers singled you out to ask you, Ron Livingston, to make a video diary, which you did. My name's Ron Livingston. I'm playing a, a man named Lewis Nixon. He was the intelligence officer for Easy Company in the Second World War, 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment. And I shot a video diary. Here it is. But it allowed you, by making it, to drop out of line where others had to march or execute a grueling exercise. You could just say, nah, I'm videotaping. Did this privilege inadvertently let you gain insight into Nixon, just the improv maverick nature of the man? Anytime you have a big ensemble like that, they always say that you don't play the king. You just walk on stage and everybody else plays that you're the king. And it had that effect. When Tony asked me to do it, I didn't feel like I could say no, but it was sort of like, I got to prepare. I don't have time for this. Can't they get somebody for this? But no, Tony said, no, Dale won't allow any outsiders in his boot camp. So it's got to be one of you guys. And we picked you. So they're okay. All right. What I discovered when I started doing it, exactly like you said, it was kind of like having a hall pass. Like I just had my own personal hall pass that allowed me to go pretty much anywhere I wanted to. As long as I had the camera and pretended that I was filming something, I was allowed to do that. And it made the other actors, especially a lot of the British guys who were playing background roles and non-speaking roles, they didn't read the book, they don't know who's playing who. It just kind of gave everybody the idea that, oh, this guy Nixon's different. The same rules don't quite apply to him. He's got something important that they gave him to do. He's doing something important. So we don't need to know about, we don't want to get in the way of it. That's very much what Nixon did. That's a little bit of what the job of the S2 intelligence officer is, because his purview is trying to ferret out where the enemy lines are and process all the intel that's coming in. So yeah, I really ended up enjoying that experience, especially after I think the very first time I tried to do it like a video log, which is what they suggested and talk about what I was going through and my feelings. I spent 10 seconds trying to do that. And like, I'm not, I can't, there's just no way. The Ron Livingston aside to the best fit. No, I can't do it. I said, if I'm going to do that, I'm just going to document what I see and what everybody else is doing. And then that's going to have to be the experience, you know, because who gives it, you know, who cares what I think and feel? Nobody cares. <laughs> there's a great line in your boot camp video diary where you remember your mum saying to you, like all mums, if someone told you to jump off a cliff, would you do it? And you said on the video diary, yes, if Dale died, the military advisor to Band of Brothers told me to jump off a cliff, I probably would. <laughs> At the end of your video diary, Dale died. Oh, it says something unbelievably beautiful. The truth is in you. And the truth will come out of you through your eyes, through your actions, through your gestures, through your handling of weapons, through your wearing of the uniform, everything. The truth is there. Let it shine, boys. Let it shine. Make the world proud of Easy Company, and the world will celebrate our forefathers, the people who wore this uniform for real. We've got that chance, folks. This Boot camp was the place where you became the characters, where you lost that sense of Hollywood self, where you became deeply connected to 1940s everyday heroes. Can you talk about that identity awareness? When recruits enter the military, they enter as recruits and they come out of basic training as 
soldiers. Now, what happened in that amount of time? They didn't fight any wars. They're running around doing physical exercising. They're training on something. But there's something about the fact of saying, all right, you have now transformed from recruits. You are the thing that you thought you were trying to be. It's like a moment of saying, you know what? It doesn't matter if we're ready. We're as ready as we're going to be. And we're as ready as anyone else is going to be. So let's go do this. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. You were Lewis Nixon. Damien Lewis was cast as Winters. Where and when did you first meet? We first met, I believe it was at Camp Longmore in the UK, which is where we trained. They imposed on us from the start that we were to refer to each other by character names and character names only. So he was Winters from the very beginning? He was Winters. Was he bringing the American accent even offset? He was. He came in with it. You know, he was working it. And it was good. If I didn't know, I wouldn't catch it. I knew he was British, though. I just knew that because I knew it. And I did have a little bit of a American snobbery thing of like, they're really going to give this part. They couldn't find an American to play this part. They're even outsourcing the jobs of American heroes now. Yeah, although I guess we were on their home turf, so I don't know if we were taking their jobs or they were taking ours. I think it all <laughs> came on the wash. Nixon and Winters were two such different human beings in upbringing, in prior life experience. How do you understand the core of their internal connection? Were they friends? Were they siblings? Was there a rivalry, a competitive spirit in that? It was definitely all of that. I remember... Bill Dye, he did a thing where in the beginning we were divided up into platoons and squads and he put Damien and I in the same squad, but he made me the squad lead, right? So now I'm in charge of like waking Damien up in the morning and I'm above him. And then that's something that's going to change throughout the course of it. And it was a really interesting clue to me that it's like, oh, I see. Nixon kind of came in as this hotshot, privileged golden boy and winners passed him on the track that had to have colored his experience of it. I think there was a lot of that sibling friend rivalry that's part of any deep and abiding love. Did you feel closer to Damien than the other actors? You know, because of just an odd quirk of the way it worked, all the English guys would clock out and they would go home to their girlfriends or their wives. And the Americans would all get funneled back into the living quarters. And we're in London. We don't know anybody. So most of the time was spent by the Americans with each other just because nobody else wanted to talk to us. And within that, it broke down like all the married guys who had families and kids lived over on the West End because they had little flats with kitchens and they would get together for play dates and do dinners together. All the young guys that were single were out in big mob hitting all the clubs. 
And most of my time was spent with the three or four guys that were not married, didn't have kids, but did have significant relations. So we weren't really on the prowl. So it was sort of like, what do you want to do? I don't know. You want to go to the pub again? Sure. You know. Behind the music for Band of Brothers is a <laughs> film that still needs to be made. Yeah. The central conflict of episode one is that between Sobel, David Swimmer, and Dick Winters. At 1000 hours, I followed your orders to the minute. I changed the time to 0945. No one told me, sir. I telephoned. I'm courted with a family that has no telephone. And sent a runner. No runner found me, Captain. Irregardless, when given a task to perform by a ranking officer, you should have delegated your task of latrine inspection to another officer. You failed to do so. Were to let such a failure of duty by my own XO go unpunished, what kind of message is that to the men? I performed my duty as I was ordered, sir. And I disagree. At boot camp, is it true that the producers made you wary of David Swimmer in basic training? He was, what, six years into a star turn as Ross from Friends? And so the producers treated him like a star. They gave him his own room, his own privileges, and kept him away from you to build a natural distrust, a distance. That's how they set it up. They definitely kept David as a star apart. It's somewhere in the range between mind games and analogy. By the way, he was fantastic as part of the boot camp experience because he was really inhabiting the character of Herbert Sobel. Like, he was really being shitty to us. <laughs> like, he was in it. He was doing it. He didn't mean it, perhaps, but it really, it sold. All of it helped. All of it went into the pot. He's a fantastic actor. You talk about Schwimmer's acting chops when Sobel drives off the base, having just been reassigned. That look of mournful sorrow in his face It is the saddest Ross Geller of all time. The real Sobel story is actually incredibly dark. The trauma of his war experience and the Easy Company experience in particular truly haunted him. He tried suicide, and after his death, his son turned up at an Easy Company reunion to find out why the men did what they did. And in Ambrose's book, the paratroopers all relate the extraordinary closeness that they experienced. Many of them attribute it that it was first created both by the technical skills Sobel drilled into them, but also the unity that was built into them by detesting Sobel. Name? We've got Joseph D. Shaw. Rusty bayonet, Liebgard. You want to kill Germans? Yes, sir. Not with this. I wouldn't take this rusty piece of shit to war, and I will not take you to war in your condition. Now, thanks to these men and their infractions, every man in the company who had a weekend pass has lost it. It's such a complicated dynamic. You know, I hesitate to say much about it or try to put any kind of spin on it just because of the way it played out. It's definitely true that it wouldn't have been easy company without Herbert Sobel. He really made it what it was, even if he wasn't the guy to carry it into combat. And those aren't always the same guy. You know, George McClellan in the Civil War did an extraordinary job of building the Union Army and a terrible job of fighting with it. But damn if he didn't build it. Well, that conflict is at the heart of an episode, which is perhaps the most lighthearted of the entire series. Most of the men are still living in the moment. They haven't quite grasped the stakes of the conflict they're about to enter. Indeed, one of the only characters who's figured it out already is Lewis Nixon. Now, fans talk about the raggedness with which you play Nixon towards the end, like a man 
whom the war has scooped everything out of. But even in this first episode, Nixon, he's got a awareness compared to the naivete of the privates and the stoicism of Winters. They haven't even been to war yet. Yet Nixon's already waxing nostalgic about civilian life. Five o'clock in New York. Four o'clock in Chicago. Happy hour, huh? <laughs> yeah. Happy hour. A couple of drinks. Maybe an early dinner before the theater. Civilized place for civilized men. Should have been born earlier, Nix. What, and give up all this? Where does that ability to be one step ahead always for Lewis Nixon come from? I think part of it for him was just that's the way his mind worked. He grasped things a lot sooner than people around him did. He had had an extraordinary education. I think he traveled the world. He had a strong grasp of history. For me as an actor, that was a definitely a conscious. I realized that in the script, Lewis gets to be a little bit the voice of, like, I get to see it a little bit from the perspective of the audience forward in time, who knows how this ends, who sees where this is going. Again, that relates back, I think, to his job as the S2 intelligence officer. That's his job is to try to see where it's going. He always sees the whole board that carries the board in his head and just has the ability to do that, to keep that. Me as Nixon, having that contemplative back thing and Damien grounded in the present, look to the future, like gave us a lot to play with. Nixon's journey through Band of Brothers is remarkable to witness. And I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves with spoiler alerts here. But he's a man who shows such wit, such energy in episode one. Sobel's a genius. I had a headmaster just like him in prep school. I know the type. What was Michelangelo's a genius. Beethoven's a genius. You know a man in this company who wouldn't double-time Curahee with a full pack just to piss in that guy's morning coffee? And then the war trauma, coupled with his personal life disintegrating at home, sees him end as a ground-down, jaundiced, almost a cynic. What do you think I should write to these parents, Dick? Hear what I said, Nick? You've been demoted. Yeah, demoted, gotcha. Because I don't know how to tell them their kids never even made it out of the goddamn plane. You tell them what you always tell them. Their sons died as heroes. You really still believe that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Don't you? And you see photographs of two-term presidents before and after they serve, and they appear to have aged two decades in that time. Nixon and Band of Brothers did that before the viewer's eyes. Emotionally, what was it like to go through that arc yourself as Nixon? First, I'm going to give credit where credit is due. Some of it was the makeup department. Did an extraordinary <laughs> job of hollowing out the eyes, making us appear a little more gaunt, a little more ragged. We weren't entirely on our own. Some of it was just the shooting schedule. We shot episode one, Curry first when we were all bright-eyed and fresh. And a lot of those later episodes, we shot last after we'd been grinding it out for eight or nine months. And then some of it, I think, was just the nature of the subject matter. The job that they did creating the concentration work camp in episode nine, 
the phenomenal job that the art department did of building that place, it's very sobering. The image of it and being there is very sobering, but there are no ghosts there. If you go to the real one, I feel like there are ghosts and the birds don't sing and you feel it in your soul. This one, it's there and you see it, but you don't feel it in your soul quite the same way. But just the way it looks is enough that you can't even walk around and look at it and imagine it without it draining you just to consider the magnitude of what was done. How did the experience of playing Lewis Nixon as a human being, how did it change your role in ways big or small? I never called anybody sir before Band of Brothers, and I haven't stopped calling people sir since. So there's some silly ones that you just pick up. I feel like every job seeps into you. And this one was extremely powerful, just in my strength as a person. I was, I think, 32, 33 or something like that. But I came back with a lot more sort of gravity. I was grounded in a way. Before, there's so much like, I got to prove myself. I got to make it. I got to, you know, I got to get my break. And then I got to do a great job in my break. And I went to Band of Brothers feeling like that. Like, I got to, you know, I got to do the thing. And I came back feeling like, all right. Yeah, what's next? I haven't since had that young man energy uh, going into something. When you watch it now, what do you experience? Do you think about your performance or do you think about your own passage of life? (laughs) It's funny. I've only sat down to watch it top to bottom maybe six or seven times. I catch pieces of it. If it's on, I'll get sucked in and I'll watch it for a while. I used to say this thing where any project I'm in, the first time I see it, I'm only looking at my hair. The second time I see it, I'm only looking at my acting. And the third time I see it, I can get a sense of how good of a movie it is. And I would say with Band of Brothers, going back 15 or 20 years, now it's kind of like watching home movies because you see yourself at such a younger time. And it's that way when you watch home movies, you know that's you, right? but you know you're not that person anymore. That's a person that you have a relationship with. I'm a lot more generous to that guy on screen when I watch him now than I was when I watched it then because I felt close to it. Now I have moments of looking at it and going, man, I was really good in that. Not really good in everything, but I I was pretty good in that. The conveyor belt of life (laughs) from Band of Brothers has become a cultural phenomenon. It is so much bigger now than it was when it came out 20 years ago. Ron, how do you understand that? I think everything kind of grows in time. If it can stay relevant and if it can stand the test of time, then it only grows. Just by the nature of when it was aired, our first episode aired September 9th, two days before 9-11. Those two things are like kind of inextricably intertwined for me because you're just ready, you're excited about your show, you're watching the thing, and there's the videos of the guys saying we were attacked, and then two days later, the trade towers come down, and the United States has had an attack on its soil. I think everybody was cracked wide open for a couple of years, and Band of Brothers just kind of sits in that experience that kind of goes hand in hand with it. Ron Livingston, thank you for honoring the memory of Lewis Nixon and sharing your journey with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Lord. We on the risers, we called on the grass. We never let up, we always did our ass. Tiny, tiny Christ Almighty, who the hell are we? Didn't that goddamn railway for three?
Ron Livingston as Captain Lewis Nixon. Just a wonderfully layered performance in a series full of them. Next episode, we join Easy Company aboard that formation of C-47s headed for Normandy and talk episode two, Day of Days. That night I took time to thank God for seeing me through that day of days and prayed I would make it through D plus one. And if somehow I managed to get home again, I promised God and myself that I would find a quiet piece of land someplace and spend the rest of my life in peace. We'll speak with the man who used those words to lay the foundation of what's in store for Major Dick Winters and Easy Company for the rest of the series. He's a writer of episode two, Day of Days, the great John Orloff. If you can't make a guy dropping into Nazi-occupied France with nothing but a fucking trench knife, and by the end of the day, he has taken four 105-millimeter German cannons and saved hundreds, if not thousands, of lives. If you can't make that dramatically interesting, then you need another job. Make sure to subscribe to HBO's official Band of Brothers podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And please rate, review and share. And a reminder, as if you needed one, that you can watch Karahi and every single episode of Band of Brothers on HBO Max right now. Until next time... Karahi! From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese-American culture, and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max.